0: Let's turn together to Matthew chapter one and together, let's talk about the greatness of Jesus. Maybe you've had the experience in life where somebody has overhyped something. We all have had times where we've experienced something and, and the, the thing that somebody told you about can't live up to the hype. Maybe it was a movie. And then said, you have to see this movie. I think this is the best movie ever made. You go see the movie and you go, that's pretty good. I don't know if it lives up to all that, but it was pretty good. Sometimes it happens with restaurants. Somebody says, Oh, you have to go to this restaurant. This is amazing. And it was not amazing. It's all right. It's pretty good. I wish you hadn't given me this expectation up here because what I had was okay. I wouldn't have complained about it, but here we come to Jesus. And I want you to know that Jesus lives up to the hype that Jesus has unparalleled greatness. It would be impossible for us today to overstate the greatness of Jesus. In fact, I want you to know that today. I want you, by the time we're done here, to, to agree that, wow, there is nobody like Jesus. But beyond you having that in your head, I, I pray this, that you, at the, in response to that great truth of the greatness of Jesus, I pray that you'll give yourself to Jesus. That's where this is all leading today, a response from you, To the greatness of who Jesus is. Now, I could go anywhere in the New Testament to make the case that Jesus is great, greater than anyone. But why not here in Matthew chapter 1 in these events surrounding that first Christmas? Let's see together the unparalleled greatness of Jesus. Matthew 1 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I want you to skip down to verse 18. and he called his name Jesus. See with me, first of all, the greatness of Jesus declared in his genealogy. See with me, the greatness of Jesus declared in the genealogy here. So this gospel that Matthew's writing as the spirit guides him, begins with a declaration of who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Christ. And then what follows is a lengthy genealogy that makes the case that Jesus can make a valid claim to that designation as the Christ. It begins here with David and mentions how it began actually before that with Abraham and then culminates in Jesus. So Matthew is showing us, this is the one who can legitimately lay claim to the the King of Israel. He is from the line of David as promised. Look again, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy, catch this, of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? we so commonly see those words together, Jesus Christ. We might mistakenly think, well, that's just his first name and last name, that Jesus is his first name, Christ is his family name, but that would not be correct. He is Jesus Christ, but Christ is a title, not a name. And that great title is mentioned four times just in our text here alone. Verse one, we see it, verse 16, verse 17, and verse 18. So what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Well, Christ is the Greek version of that Hebrew word Messiah. It means anointed one. This means that he is the promised one that the prophets had spoke so much about who would be the ultimate king and the ultimate priest of Israel in the line of David. The people knew to expect because the prophet spoke so much about him that a great one's coming and he's going to deliver us. Now, they didn't know how it was exactly going to work out, but they had the prophecies. Now, we're sitting in a good spot because we live between the first coming of Jesus and we're anticipating the second coming of Jesus. So we see all these prophecies of the old covenant and we see, okay, some of these obviously were fulfilled in the first coming where the Messiah came so humbly, came so lowly. He came to give himself for us. We see that so clearly. He came to suffer and die. But then there are other prophecies still to be fulfilled where Jesus, the Messiah, will not just rule over all of Israel, but he will rule over all of his world. So here, this is how Matthew begins his gospel, that Jesus is that great one that the prophets had spoken so much about. This is the promised one. This is the anointed one. And again, the genealogy then shows the validity of that claim. He is the deliverer. He is the judge. He is the savior. So just see with me now the greatness of Jesus in even his genealogy and the declaration of who he is. Now notice this with me, the grace declared in the genealogy. Yes, his greatness, but how about the greatness of his grace? Now, for most of us, a genealogy is not that interesting. If you notice, I did not read the genealogy here in the text and you don't really want me to, do you? So it's not, it's not exciting reading when you read about this one, then is the father of this one. Who's the father of that one. And so it's there now it's God's inspired word. It's there for a purpose. And I have read it many times in my life and I encourage you to read it, but for public reading little tough, right? So, so the reason though we, we, we find genealogy is just not that interesting to us. I think maybe until we get a little older. When we get a little older, we might want to dig into our family tree a little bit. Some of you probably have spent some money on it, became a hobby of yours. You you went to one of these websites and you're very interested in who came before your great grandparents. I'm still only mildly interested in that. Maybe one day. But as a booth, we have one worry as booths, as you can imagine. When we look back into our family tree, we're like, okay, I just hope I'm not related to John Wilkes' booth, right? And you've wondered it before. Is our pastor... Somehow related to John Wilkes Booth. Listen, as a kid, as a booth, as a kid, whenever that lesson came up in school, when you get to the civil war and you get to Abraham Lincoln, which a wonderful president, you just like, Oh no, here it goes again. And you prep your children for it. When you're a booth, like, Hey, listen, all right, they're going to talk about this and they're going to call you John Wilkes Booth. And then they're going to ask, here's what I can tell you on this topic. As far as I know, the one family book we have, the Booths, that I think my dad might have somewhere. When we crack that open and read about it, we can find no link to John Wilkes Booth. <laughs> Whew, I'm glad we avoided that. Now, in the past, when I've had to maybe claim, at least I got the same name as him, I also want to claim, I want to claim William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. There was a righteous guy. who's a good guy to be related to. But the point is, when we think about genealogies, there's some interest there. But when we come to the genealogy of Jesus, very interesting here. And we're going to see the grace of God here. You would think in the lineage, in the family tree of the one who is our Messiah, you would expect to see a pristine family tree, that there'll be nobody in the line who had ever done anything notorious, nobody done anything scandalous, but that's not what we find here. And I love how the Holy Spirit inspires Matthew to call out some things here. First of all, notice in verse 10, as we just drop into parts of this genealogy, we see the notoriously wicked King Manasseh in the line that would eventually bring us the Messiah there. Then we have some ladies mentioned. And this is noteworthy because women were not typically listed in ancient genealogy. It was always just the fathers down to the sons. And and yet the Holy Spirit inspires Matthew to tell us about not just Mary who's to come, but four women he's gonna mention before we get to Mary. This is very noteworthy. So notice with me now, verse three, we see the name Tamar there. Do you find it? This is a reference to Genesis 38. This was a very uh, unseemly occasion that's recorded in the scriptures in, in Genesis 38, where a woman, Tamar, pretended to be a prostitute that she might have relations with her father-in-law and to bear a child by him. It was an immoral, scandalous thing, just as it would be in our day. But from that error, from that sin came Perez, who was then going to be a part of the line that would eventually lead to the Messiah. And God calls it out here. How about chapter uh, one, verse five here? Verse five here, we find the name Rahab in the lineage here. She was from a pagan people, so not a part of the people of God. She had been a prostitute in her life before she put her faith in the God of Israel. So hers is a story of personal redemption, but also in the line of the one who would be our redeemer. How about verse five? Also, we see the name of Ruth here. Now, she didn't have a scandalous background, but she was from Moab. She was not a part of the people of God, a pagan person. But she came to have faith in the God of Israel, married Boaz, and and God did something wonderful in her life. And she gets to be a part of the line that would lead to the Messiah. But then we come to verse six, and we come to Bathsheba. Here's how the text reads. And Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon, listen, by the wife of Uriah. So this is David's worst mistake in his life, a grievous sin where he took another man's wife. We're told this is Uriah's wife. And he took her as his own and was immoral with her. She conceived a child and to cover up as people do when they're caught in sin, got to cover it up. He brings Uriah back from battle, sends him back into battle to be killed in battle. What a horrible time. But here's David then filled with remorse and regret for what he did, crying out to God for forgiveness and our merciful God forgave him for his sin. And even Bathsheba, the, the savior of the world, the lineage runs through through. Bathsheba even. So I want you to just notice with me that God inspires Matthew to note that. It's not glossed over. We see here, I see, we see the grace and mercy of God here. That's the deliberate point here. So yes, we see the greatness of God in this genealogy. We see how God sovereignly works through these people and these mistakes and these sins to accomplish his purposes. God is a master at that. But here's grace here, that God can do amazing things through even embarrassing mistakes and failures in the past. So there's a word of hope for you that your family tree does not limit your usefulness to the Lord. That there's nothing your mom and dad did that would make you then unusable and irredeemable to God. Nothing your grandparents did. There's nobody in your family tree in the past that would render you hopeless outside of God working in your life. So we'll go back to my family. So really, so what if I had been related to John Wilkes Booth? That's just an embarrassing person who shares my name. And even if somehow that was in my background, it really doesn't matter. That has no bearing on how God can work in my life. And the same is true for you and your past, not just your family's past, but your own past can't hold you back from accomplishing what God wants to do in your life. So here we are, a room full of sinners, we've all sinned. We all have shameful things that we've done in the past that we'd rather not talk about. We'd rather not everybody know about. We all have those in our past. And here's the good news. God can forgive you. If you come to Jesus humbly, he can wash you clean, make you new. Don't we see it even in the genealogy of Jesus? So we're just talking about the greatness of Jesus, his greatness declared in his genealogy. He is the Christ, the grace we see here in the genealogy. But how about this? Let's see the greatness of Jesus now declared in his birth. The greatness of Jesus declared in his birth. And so let's go right back intentionally to verses 18 through 24. Let's hear these now again. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Do you see the greatness of Jesus here? Scripture says he was born of a virgin. He was virgin born. He was virgin conceived. There was absolutely no physical contact between Joseph and Mary. Doesn't the scripture make it clear? Joseph's troubled by this. She's, she's pregnant, and I know I have nothing to do with it. And being a righteous man, he's like, I'm just going to kind of break off this betrothal. It was a binding betrothal, bigger than our engagement back in those days. I'm going to have to break that off. I don't want to shame her, humiliate her, but I can't be a part of this. And an angel of God didn't explain what was really going on here. But think about this. Now, Jesus was one who was conceived in the womb of a virgin. And we're told he is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Say, so how can that happen? Well, God did this. Verse 18 again. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. Here it is. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, the same thing. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So just think about the greatness of Jesus here. That truth sets Jesus apart from anybody else who has ever, ever lived conceived, born to a virgin. There's no one so great as Jesus. This puts Jesus far above any other category you might've had for him. This is no mere prophet. Prophets came into the world just fine through moms and dads, but this one born of a virgin, he's, he's beyond he's beyond the, the prophet category. Notice this, no human father. So the question is, well, who was Joseph then? Joseph was a wonderful, godly stepfather, raising the son of God. So think about this with me. The, the miraculous nature and divine conception reveals Jesus's unique nature and his unique identity that we see in this virgin conception of Jesus, both his deity and his holiness. So what then is the nature of Jesus? He is God and man, fully man. Was he not born of Mary He was conceived in the womb of Mary by the spirit. So he is fully man, but he is also fully God. We're told here he's conceived by the Holy spirit. So he is God in human flesh. Notice the explanation in verse 23. This is just as the prophet said, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Literally that's who Jesus was when he walked the earth, God with us. So what happened in the womb of Mary? The eternal son of God took on humanity in the womb of Mary. That one born in the stable to this humble couple was the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, taking on humanity. Jesus from eternity past has always been God, but something amazing here, he takes on humanity, he adds humanity now to his nature, and he's amazing. God in flesh, and he is indeed holy. So though fully man as well, he did not inherit our sin nature. So we look at this. He's, he's not born like the rest of us with a father and a mother. And so he doesn't have a sin nature. Now, he was tempted to sin. He had opportunities to sin, but never sin. But his, his dealing with temptation different than ours. Have you noticed in your life, there's, there's a temptation to sin that comes from within you. All of us have a sin nature. You can find out sometimes just drive down the road and watch how people cut you off. And you have some things in you. Yeah, they provoked it, but there's something in you that's not righteous. And Jesus doesn't have that part where where he's just kind of inclined to do wrong. But we are inclined to do wrong. Jesus is holy is the point we're making here. And he is God in flesh. We're just talking about his greatness. His greatness also seen in the prophecies spoken of him and fulfilled in him. Look at it again, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's, a, that's from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah seven fourteen. But there are other wonderful prophecies that were spoken of Jesus and fulfilled in him. How about this one in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and following? Listen to this. For a child... Will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Listen to the greatness. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will accomplish this. So other prophecies. Remember the prophet Micah said, this Messiah, the promised one, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. We're even told how the Messiah was going to die. Psalm 22 talks about him being pierced. And then Isaiah 53 says, he's going to pierce through for our sins. Do you see the greatness of Jesus. But once again, let's also see his grace. Let's look at the grace of Jesus declared in his birth. Verse 21 again. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. So all this prophecy from centuries before. All this amazement at the virgin conception. The virgin birth. All was because of a mission of to save us. We're even told the name that was given. The angel said, you're going to name him Jesus. What's the significance of that? That's the Aramaic word, Yeshua. That's the old Testament name Joshua. And it literally means God is salvation. You're going to name him, Jesus, meaning God is salvation. And he tells us why, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus is the savior that we have always needed. Don't miss that. That's key when you think about what is this all about? It's all about a savior. So Jesus did not come on this mission to the earth merely to give us a wonderful holiday. I mean, isn't it a wonderful holiday? We love it, but that was not the point of Jesus coming. Neither was the mission merely for Jesus to come and love and teach and give us an example of love. He did do all that, but that wasn't the mission. His mission was to save us. Why else would God do something so elaborate that he did? Being born of a virgin, willing to come into the first century, being born in a stable, subjecting himself to the hostility of sinful men, allowing himself to be crucified on a Roman cross. Why would he do this? This was to rescue you from your sins. No other other meaning would make any sense. She'll bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's monumental. That's the mission. That's the purpose here. But you might be asking the question right now in your own mind, are my sins really that big a deal? I mean, maybe maybe all that elaborate plan to rescue, maybe that was really bad people, But, but my life is pretty good. I can't imagine that all that was necessary to save me. But I want you to hear the word of God. That indeed was necessary. If you have any hope of forgiveness, of any hope of eternal life, God knew this had to happen for you. The Bible tells us that your sin maybe is a bigger problem than you've ever recognized before. And so I want you to hear that with me for just a moment. What does the scripture say about your sins? Just bear with me for just a few more moments. Well, we read this in the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah seventeen we we're told this about the human heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's what God says about the human heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And that's That's in our hearts. One of the ways that deception of our hearts works is we think, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. I'm just a little bit off. But if I just made a few tweaks here, if I just maybe got rid of a couple of bad habits, maybe add in some better habits, then God and I would be right. But that's not what the scripture says. Your heart is deceiving you if you think you're just a little bit off. No, we need a savior to save us from our sins. And that tells us, I can't do it. God had to send a rescuer for me. Here's what else God says about sin. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. That means as we sit here and as I stand here, there's not one of us in the room that can make the claim on our own, I'm righteous. Now the scripture says there's none righteous, no, not one, not a one of us, not a one on the planet does God look out and say, there's a righteous one. It's worse than that. Romans 3.23, this is God's diagnosis of every human, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our universal condition. It's a devastating condition. Listen to it. Because all of us are sin. Listen, we're all separate from this glorious, wonderful God. That's our condition when we're born. Isaiah 59 nine two. listen to this. But your iniquities, that just means sin, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So you might think, well, I'm not that far off. I pray a lot. Is God hearing your prayers? If you're still in your sins, he says he's not hearing. He's hiding his face from you because you continue in your sin. You won't humbly receive him. So your sin separates you from this God who loves you so much and your sin leads to death. Romans 6, 23, just one of the places that describes this. Listen to this. For the wages of sin is death. That's a permanent separation from God, an eternal separation. The wages of sin is death, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus the Lord. So our need is for somebody to open our eyes to the true picture of who we are. That's the Holy Spirit who can show you your sinfulness and your need of a savior. Our need is for someone to come and to cleanse us of all of our sin, to make us righteous. Our need is for someone to forgive us on a personal level, even on a legal level, all these sins against God, all these laws we've broken against God. Who can forgive me from all of that? Our needs for a savior and Jesus came to be your savior. This is why he took on flesh and blood in the womb of Mary that he might live his perfect life and go to a cross and then give that body and blood in payment to make atonement for all of your sins. That's why he did this. So there is grace in Jesus. The Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus said, if you believe in him, you'll not perish but have everlasting life. Do you hear the grace offered to us in Jesus? If you come to Jesus today, laying down your sin and asking him for forgiveness to be your Lord and savior, he'll take your sin and he will make you holy. He'll take away your fear and he'll give you peace. He'll take away your loneliness and load you up with his love. He'll take your emptiness and he'll give you a life of significance. Can I illustrate that for you as we close? It was several years ago now. I was flipping channels during the Christmas season like this. And and I heard Mannheim Steamroller playing Christmas music. It was on PBS. And, and then they kind of queued up. They were going to sing the song. I recognize the it tune. It's going to be What Child Is This? And I thought, this ought to be good. They had the vocalist there. But all of a sudden, the vocalist started singing. And she's not singing What Child Is This? She's singing some empty song about love. And, and I'm thinking, what is it? Why, why would they take Jesus out of this Christmas song and insert it with such a meaningless song? Well, I did a little research and realized, well, I was wrong. The original version of the song didn't have Jesus in it to begin with. It's a song called Greensleeves. From the 16th century, that melody comes along. It wasn't until the 1860s, 1865, that a man by the name of William Chatterson Dix A believer in Jesus Christ, he takes the meaningless lyrics out the song called Greensleeves. He puts in the lyrics, what child is this? What an amazing improvement from a, from an empty song to an amazing song full of meaning. I want you to hear the original lyrics. It's like a bad country song. Here we go. (laughs) Listen, this is the original song from this is like they say it's one of the earliest English language songs ever. Alas, my love, you do me wrong country, right? To cast me off discourteously. Well, that's a little higher brow than country right there. For I have loved you well and long, delighting in your company. Green sleeves was all my joy. Green sleeves was my delight. Green sleeves was my heart of gold. And who but my lady, green sleeves? Then some other verses go on and say, Your vows you've broken like my heart. Oh, why did you so enrapture me? Now I remain in a world apart, but my heart remains in captivity. It's kind of meaningless. We've heard dozens and dozens of songs like that. But William Chatterson, Chatterson Dix, he met Jesus and he took that very familiar song and took out those empty words. And man, he put this in there. Listen to this. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds keep watch their are keeping this. This is Christ, the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing haste, haste to bring him Lord, the babe, the son of Mary. Why lays he in such mean a state where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christians fear for sinners here. The silent word is pleading. Nails, spears shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. So bring him incense, gold and myrrh. Come peasant king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. Raise, raise a song on high. The virgin sings her lullaby. Joy, joy for Christ is born. The babe, the son of Mary. What an improvement. What an improvement. And I just want to share that with you because that's an illustration of what Jesus can do in your life. You bring your meaningless song to him. Lord, I've been wasting my life. What about, am I just my life's just another life out there. It's just about nothing. And I come to you, Lord, that you might take that and replace that. Give me a new life. Give me new, give me new meaning. It's all through Jesus. And so right now, would you make that shift? Would you bring your broken self to the Lord? He loves you. Listen, the whole plan to save you was his idea. God's not going to refuse you if you take him up in his offer to forgive your sins. That's why Jesus came. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he was raised from the dead. To make the offer. If you believe in him, you won't perish. You won't go on another day in emptiness and insignificance. He's going to replace all that. You're going to become a child of God. You'll have a home in heaven, but you have to turn from the empty and put your faith in Jesus. I want to give you a moment to do that even, even right now. Even before we sing, would you call on Jesus? Let's pray together.